Part Two, Chapter One of Rubble and Rose Leaves and Things of That Kind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Allen. Rubble and Rose Leaves by Frank W. Borum. Odd Volumes. We have had a kind of wedding in my study this morning. The bride arrived by post. It happened in this wise. Twenty years ago, I attended an auction sale at Mosgiel. A valuable library was under the hammer, and the chance was too good to be missed. The books were all tied up in bundles and laid out on tables. I took a note of the numbers of those lots that contained works that I wanted. When, on the arrival of the carrier's cart, I proudly inspected my purchases, I found among them an odd volume. It was the first part of Foster's Life and Correspondence. The book was bound up with a number of others, and I could not buy them without becoming responsible for it. My first inclination was to throw it away, and the temptation recurred when I left Mosgiel for Hobart, and again when I left Hobart for Armadale. Of what use was an odd volume? In packing up at Hobart I actually tossed it to the heap of rubbish that was to be left behind— but an aching void in the last case led to its ultimate rescue. This is the first part of our little romance. Last week I was visiting a country minister. In the ordinary course of things, I glanced over his bookshelves. I was just turning away when, among some dusty volumes away on the topmost shelf, my eye caught the words, Foster's Life and Correspondence. It, too, was an odd volume. On hearing of my own experience, the good man urged me to transfer the volume to my portmanteau and say no more about it. It was, he said, of no use to him. But, my dear fellow, I replied, I might just as well say that mine is of no use to me. We must leave the matter in the meantime. It is so long since I looked at the volume on my shelves that I cannot be sure that they are companions. They may be duplicates. Yours, I see, is volume two. If on my return I find that mine is volume one, we will come to some arrangement." If not, neither of us can help the other. My Mosgill purchase turned out to be the first volume. I posted my friend a copy of Bleak House, which, as I happened to know, he had never read, and he forwarded the Foster by return of post. And this morning I took the odd volume from the lumber on the top shelf, introduced it to its mate, and now the two stand proudly side by side among my biographies. They make a handsome pair— no bride and bridegroom could look more perfectly matched. I do not suppose that they had ever met before, but that circumstance in itself presents no lawful impediment to their being united in a lifelong partnership. The mating of books is a very mechanical affair. At a big publishing house you may see two huge cases side by side, just as they have come from the printers. The one is packed with copies of Volume 1. The other contains copies of Volume 2. An assistant, asked by a customer for a copy of the complete work, takes a book from the one box and a book from the other, claps them together with a bang, and they are mated for all time to come. There is no question of selection and no question of consent. There is no wilt thou have and no I will. The volume in the top right corner of the one box is unable to steal a shy and furtive glance at the book lying in a corresponding position in the other box. His destined partner may be a little plumper or a little thinner than himself. 
she may be neatly attired in a pretty cover that sets off her charms to perfection. Or she may be dressed in an ill-fitting wrapper that is smudged or torn. He cannot tell. He can only wait, and she can only wait, until they are unceremoniously snatched from their respective corners, banged together, and thus, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, made partners in a bond that is indissoluble. There is no question of sexual selection such as Darwin, Wallace, and the great biologists like to portray. The books in the one box do not strut and parade and show off their beauties in order to win the admiration of the books in the other box. That may be because they are conscious that they are all so much alike. They feel that there is little to pick and choose between them. Or, on the other hand, it may be because they suspect that the books in the other box are all much of a muchness, and that it matters very little which bride each bridegroom has. But whatever the reason, there it is. There is no element of selection, such as we find in the fields and the forests. There is no love-making and courtship, such as we mortals know. The volumes are arbitrarily paired off, and the thing is done. And strangely enough, they appear to belong to each other from that very moment. One would feel that he was conniving at a kind of literary adultery if he were to take the second volume of this set and the second volume of that set and deliberately transpose them. I call the earth and the heavens to witness that in my procedure this morning I have been guilty of no such enormity. We are living in a rough world. With some books, as with some people, things go hardly. In the course of years, a volume may be cruelly deserted by its companion, or its partner may come to an untimely end. The law of the land provides that in such sad cases a second marriage is no shame. One does not like to think of my first volume of Foster spending all its days among the lumber on my top shelf, and my friend's second volume spending all its days in the dust and neglect of his top shelf. I do not often take my stand on my ministerial dignity, but I maintain that being a minister I have at least as good a right as any publisher's assistant to take those two sad and lonely volumes, the one from my top shelf in the city and the other from my friend's top shelf in the country, and to unite them in the holy bond of matrimony. And as they stand before me side by side, never to perch upon a top shelf any more, I feel that I have done myself, my friend, and them good service, by having taken pity on their loneliness, and launched them on a united career of happiness and usefulness. As things stood, neither was of any use to anybody. Their union has made it possible for each to fulfill its destiny. Let it be distinctly understood that I am not writing of single volumes. A single volume is not an odd volume. As I sit here at my desk and survey my shelves, I see at a glance that many of the books are complete in one volume. It would be the height of absurdity for me to take one such book, say, Pilgrim's Progress, and another such book, say, Pickwick Papers, and declare them volumes one and two for the mere sake of pairing them off. Neither the publisher's assistant nor the minister is vested with authority to mate the books after so arbitrary a fashion. The Pilgrim's Progress is a single volume, and the Pickwick Papers is a single volume, and it is better for them to do the work that they were sent into the world to do as single volumes, rather than to enter into an alliance that will make them each ridiculous and stultify them both. 
I am not arguing for the celibacy of the clergy or for the celibacy of the laity. How could I consistently adopt such a line of reasoning immediately after having celebrated the marriage of the Fosters? I am simply telling all the single volumes in my study, who are looking a little downcast and unhappy, now that the excitement of the wedding is past, that single volumes are not odd volumes. It is very nice, of course, to be happily mated, but it is quite possible for a solitary life to be a very useful one. Robert Louis Stevenson would have gone further. In his Virginibus Puerisque, he as good as says that no man can be a hero after he is married. The fact that he has a home of his own, and is surrounded by love and tenderness and thoughtful care, militates against the culture of the sterner virtues. If comfortable, Stevenson says, marriage is not heroic. It inevitably narrows and damps the spirit of generous men. In marriage, a man becomes stark and selfish, and undergoes a fatty degeneration of his moral being. The air of the fireside withers up all the fine wildings of the husband's heart. He is so comfortable and happy that he begins to prefer comfort and happiness to anything else on earth, his wife included. Yesterday he would have shared his last shilling. Today his first duty is to his family, and is fulfilled in large measure by laying down vintages and husbanding the health of an invaluable parent. Twenty years ago this man was equally capable of crime or heroism. Now he is fit for neither. His soul is asleep, and you may speak without restraint, for you will not waken him. In his references to women, Stevenson does not speak quite so confidently. It is true, he says, that some of the merriest and most genuine of women are old maids, and that those old maids, and wives who are unhappily married, have often most of the motherly touch. And this would seem to show, even for women, the same narrowing influence in comfortable married life. Yet, on the other hand, he feels that marriage affects a woman differently. It makes greater demands upon her. The very comfort which is the husband's peril is largely the fruit of her thoughtfulness, her industry, and her unselfishness. With wifehood, too, comes motherhood. And motherhood, side by side with felicities that only mothers know, inflicts a ceaseless discipline of suffering and self-denial. For women, Stevenson admits, there is less danger. Marriage is of so much use to a woman, opens out so much more in life, and puts her in the way of so much freedom and usefulness that, whether she marry ill or well, she can hardly miss the benefit. And he sums up by advising you, If you wish the pick of men and women, take a good bachelor, and a good wife. Since, however, if all women became good wives, all men could not remain good bachelors, it is obvious that Stevenson is crying for the moon. But he has said enough to dispel the gloomy and downcast looks that disfigured the countenances of all my single volumes immediately after the wedding. Single volumes are certainly not odd volumes. They are complete in themselves, and we are all very glad of them but there are odd volumes. Charles Wagner says that in certain shelters for old people, where husbands and wives may pass a tranquil old age together, a very expressive term is used to designate one who is left alone. The bereft solitary is called an odd volume. How appropriate! 
like a book astray from its companion tome. Odd volumes indeed, those who have hitherto been one of two inseparables. They celebrated their silver and golden weddings, and suddenly find themselves desolate. They seem like guests left behind at the end of the feast or the play. The lights are out, the curtain is down. They wander about in the emptiness like souls in torment, possessed with the idea of continually searching for something they have lost. They hardly refrain from asking, Have you seen my husband? Where shall I find my wife? Odd volumes, these. And you may find them in palaces as well as in almshouses. Did we not all hear the cry that rang through the halls of Windsor on the day on which the Prince Consort passed away? I have now no one to call me Victoria. And there are others. They knew no golden wedding, no silver wedding, no wedding at all, and yet felt themselves mated. Some, like Evangeline and Gabriel, and like my two fosters, are separated by distance and ignorance of each other's whereabouts. Some, like Drumshug and Margaret Howe, are separated by the iron hand of circumstance. Some are kept apart by cruel misunderstandings and mistaken judgments. And some, women there are on earth most sweet and high, who lose their own and walk bereft and lonely, loving that one lost heart until they die, loving it only. And so they never see beside them grow children whose coming is like breath of flowers, consoled by subtler loves than angels know through childless hours. Faithful in life and faithful unto death, such souls in sooth illume with luster splendid that glimpsed glad land wherein, the vision saith, earth's wrongs are ended. The purest spirit that ever walked this earth of ours was, I say it reverently, an odd volume. I do not mean that he was a single volume. I mean far more than that. He felt that he was not single. He was not complete in himself. In some wonderful and mystical way, deity and humanity were odd volumes. Volumes that were intended to supplement and complement each other. Volumes that had become alienated and torn asunder. The amazing thing about the scriptures is that in both testaments they employ the very phraseology of mating and marriage. The quest that led to the cross is the quest of the lover for his betrothed, and the consummation of all things is to be a marriage supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it may be that, in the larger, the lesser is included. It may be that when deity and humanity, so long estranged, are at length perfectly united, other odd volumes will find their mates, and the isolations of this life be swallowed up in the glad reunions of the life everlasting. End of Part 2 Chapter 1